dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Man, I'm hype. I look forward to this episode all year and it's finally here. So I'm feeling good. Man, I am too, bro. Christmas was great. Your Christmas was good, I assume? Oh, yes. No doubt. We had uh, an early celebration of our 10th wedding anniversary. We did it black and bougie. Ooh, we saved that up. boy dime? That boy on and a dime out. piece? Hold up. Wait, what? <laughs> yes, yes. January will be our 10th wedding anniversary, and we went out to Napa Valley, California, and did the whole wine tour thing, man. It was dope. Man, I ain't get no invite. I got pictures, but no invite. It was crazy. <laughs> like I was just like, wow, this is dope. Nah, strictly grown folks. Strictly grown. I know. I feel you. I feel you. I know how it is. But next time you do a couples trip or something, man, come oh, on. We can definitely make that happen. Not if it's okay. Napa, man. If it's Napa, bro, come on, bro. Come on. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. How about you? What'd you do for Christmas? Man, I just enjoyed the fam. You know, we kept it low key this year. Very, very excited to be to the end of 2018. You know how it's like. You're excited for a new year, but at the same time, there are some years where you're glad it's done. You're glad it's over. Like 2018 has been a rocky year. It's been a blessed year, but it's been a rocky year. So if you know, you know. If you're in the inner circle, you already know what I'm talking about. So we just glad to get to the end of 2018. And I was glad to, over the break, listen to you record an episode solo of PTM, (laughs) Footnotes, with Jamar Tisby. I said, man, this is excellent. Shoot, I was channeling Tyler Burns. Yeah, we got another episode dropping soon. It's just something I've been wanting to do, uh, kind of commentary on current events, again, from a black Christian perspective, but sort of really focused on the news that's happening right now. I know a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners appreciate that. They appreciate it when you and I weigh in, but we also trying to do something different with Pass the Mic. So we just kind of need different avenues and venues to talk about all the different things we need to talk about. So yeah, it was a lot of fun, but it's always a blessing to be on the mic with the one, the only Tyler Burns. Man, get out of here, man. I really enjoyed it. We're going to bring that back. I'm excited that people are clamoring for it. They want some more footnotes, so we're going to bring it to them. We're going to give the people what they want. And speaking of that, at the end of every year, we give people our top list, our top cultural artifacts list, and it's our year-end list with a twist. Our year-end twist is that we're not just talking about things that came out in this calendar year, but things that we encountered in this calendar year. So it could be something from 1858. It could be an obscure historical document, which will probably be on Jamar's list. It could be anything that we've discovered, any person that's influenced us that doesn't have to be from 2018. We just had to have consumed or interacted with that cultural artifact in this calendar year. So this can be everything from books to movies to CDs to people. I mean, and there's going to be a lot of things from this calendar year, but we don't just want it to be from this calendar year. We believe that art and good things are timeless. So because of that, we normally do a top five list, but this year, 2018, five is not enough, bro. Five is not enough. We had to go up a little bit and we were talking about it. We don't know what's on each other's list, but we were like, look, we can't just put in five things. There are so many things that are worthy of being mentioned and talked about on this list. So we had to go to a top seven. 
So this is the top seven cultural artifacts, the things that we interacted with and engaged with in 2018. And my philosophy on this list, which is a little bit different from Jamar's, I'm guessing, I'm thinking here. Always. I'm not just going to pick the things that y'all already know I like. Maybe some of them will be things that you already know I like. But if I've talked about it on the podcast before, chances are I won't mention it, except for one thing, which I'll talk about at the end, which didn't make my list. But it's more than likely, I'm almost 99.9% sure is on Jamar's list. But I'll talk about why it's not on my list. And it's not because I don't like it. You guys know I love it. We'll talk about it later. Okay, so top seven cultural artifacts. Anything else I need to know, Jamar? No, if you've been listening to Pass the Mic for a while, you know what it is, and you also know that <laughs> you get you're gonna get you're gonna get it with 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 sort of two flavors here. Tyler is the creative, artistic guy. He's gonna come at you sideways, some stuff that you never expected. I'm more run up the middle, smash mouth kind of you know straightforward dude. I'm not creative. I just call it like it is and state the obvious, but it still needs to be stated. So it's gonna be fun. The other thing I thought about though is I wonder if there are like, there would be gender differences as we chose these cultural artifacts. I also wonder like how different it is just depending on our personality, because you'll see from my list, you know, these things, the the stuff I'm looking at, (laughs) they're highly political. They're all, they're, they're very justice oriented, you know. The roots, bro. You have the roots. (laughs) Like everything's got to be roots with Jamar. It's, that's it, what I we should have like, called it. Like, yo, we should have called that the footnotes, the roots footnotes. It could be it the roots. tie in with it, it could tie in with Ali's podcast. <laughs> like, that's what it is. Well, we don't have an official title yet, so it could it could make the it could make the cut. But but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how our personalities play out on this, and and you know, be thinking as you're listening to this what you might have chosen because it's just it's just it's fun, but I think it's also helpful to just pause and take stock of, you know, 365 plus days, you know, give or take of what's happened and what you think is significance. Cause we just so seldom take time to pause. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate the cultural artifacts episode. It forces me to sit down and say, okay, what happened in these past several months that I need to think about process and put out there. So yeah, just grateful for the opportunity. Okay. Top seven cultural artifacts list. Let's get into it. Jamar, what's your number one? And this is in no particular order. So this will be no particular order, no specific list. We're not ranking them. But I mean, I, I'm guessing at the end of our list, we'll probably give something that we really want to talk about. But right. in no particular order, what's your first thing? Top cultural artifact. Okay. We're going to just dive right into the roots aspect. Immigration policy. Now I left that. What? What? <laughs> what? I told you, bro. Oh, Jamar. I, I warned you. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So as I think about cult- cultural artifacts, I'm thinking about the things that sort of were defining moments of the year, the things that actually maybe shifted culture. And I think the way that immigration policy has been handled slash mishandled by this presidential administration is appalling. And it has actually left an indelible, I hope, an indelible mark on the nation to say we need to do better. And so that goes all the way back to the first quarter of the year with the family separation policy and the egregious policy of separating children from their parents at the border. This sort of, um, you know, no take no prisoners, um, no excuses kind of policy that was enacted by this administration, which goes against not only, you know, sort of national principles and common human decency, 
it, it, it clearly goes against any sort of Christian morality and ethics. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care what brand of Christian you are. You don't take kids from their parents. Uh, you just don't do it. And so far, two children have died uh, while in custody. And, and, and that's two too many. Obviously, it doesn't matter how many. Mm. One is, is too many. But then beyond that, we're, as we record this in the midst of a government shutdown with really no end in sight over funding for a wall that the president said Mexico would pay for, that's not happening. So now the U.S. Is, is, government is embroiled in this ugly, intractable conflict about it. Uh, there was the, the ongoing stigma around Muslims because there was an attempt at Muslim bans that has been uh, repeatedly brought up in court. And so just the entire, uh, and then you add on top of it, the ideology behind it, the xenophobia behind it, that that it's not all immigrants, right? This was this year. This was 2018. Remember the S-hole countries comment? Yeah, that, that, that was this year. Um, 2018 feels like it's been 67 years long. But uh, this was 2018, where the president called certain countries in Africa and um, uh, people with brown skin coming from those countries, those were S-hole countries. Why can't we let in more people from, say, like Scandinavian countries where they're all, you know, Euro, white, all that stuff. Um, And so the entire ideology around immigration, where you were supposed to fear the other and the other being brown skinned people, people who don't speak uh, English people who are from certain countries only. I think that's egregious. I also think it's been uh, just a a seismic event in uh, socio-political context that you just can't think about 2018 without thinking about in- immigration policy. Yeah. And it's crazy because I actually had the opportunity to go down to Tornillo, Texas with World Relief and one of the immigration experts at World Relief, Matthew Sorens, who has an amazing book with Jenny Yang called Welcoming the Stranger. I would commend it to you. Shout out. Yes. And yeah, we had the opportunity to go down there and do a live broadcast from right outside of the detention facility, right at the borderline. And you couldn't really see a ton, but we could see in the distance. And it was on World Refugee Day. And I also had the opportunity to go um, with the Justice Conference to DC, to Capitol Hill, to actually speak with senators and congressmen and their staffs about the idea of advocating for the least of these in these areas and listening to them and hearing them and using our voices as much as we can to draw attention to the the dehumanizing policies that we've seen over the course of just this calendar year. So we talked about family separation, DACA, the refugee uh, cap, which eventually went down to 30,000 which was uh, actually devastating to hear. So there are just so many different things that intersect with immigration policy. So to hear you say that at first, you're like, what? And now I'm like, yeah, immigration has really defined 2018 in many ways. And it just seems like it's only escalating as we get closer and closer to just this stalemate over a wall, which I'm guessing, and unfortunately, I hope not, but I know our country may lead to a wall will lead to a wall. Um, and so we we hope and pray that that's not the case, but the reality is that's just the history and the story of our country. So that's right. a great first one, Jamar. That made me think, that that hit me right in the feels, hit me in the chest, but <laughs> but you're right, bro. That's I a had good to go one. roots on you. I had to go roots, but what you got? Of course. Okay, so my first cultural artifact is an album by Mr. PJ Morton. It is Gumbo Unplugged Live. Whoa. Listen. 
Okay. I got to tell y'all something. This is like, I think this is the perfect album for me. Someone was in a lab and was like, we need to create an album for Tyler Burns. And so because we want to create an album for him, this album is the perfect creation of everything that I love. So the first thing is a connection to the Black church. If you didn't know, P.J. Morton is the son of Bishop Paul S. Morton, one of the founders of the Full Gospel Baptist Fellowship. And he is known universally in gospel and church circles for his soulful gospel hymns and also his interpretations of classic gospel songs and Christian songs. And Bishop Paul Morton transferred all that soul down to P.J. Morton, and P.J. has taken it to an entirely different level. When you think about the soul of this album, when you think about the fact that P.J. is playing the piano and the keys on this album, uh, he is actually the keyboardist for Maroon 5, which is interesting because they're about to perform at the Super Bowl, all mm-hmm. these things that we could talk about a little bit later, uh-huh. but that's just a really interesting juxtaposition that they're about to perform in Atlanta. I wonder how P.J. feels about that. That's right. interesting. But then all these studio hits that he took and then just transposed into something really special and organic and free. And there were people that we know that were in the room with him. So it was a it was kind of an audience in there with him as well in the studio. He also brought in our good friend from the podcast, Lecrae, um, to do a live verse for that album. He brought in Yebba, um, all these different people that are phenomenal artists in their own right. And it's a really tight album. I think it's like nine songs, nine or 10 songs, but it is soulful. And someone mentioned today that, man, isn't isn't it true that PJ Morton is our modern day Stevie Wonder? And at first you scoff because you're like, come on, man, nobody's Stevie. But then you sit back and you think about it, you're like, that's kind of true. You know, I don't think there's a more apt comparison. So big shout out to PJ Morton. I feel like this Gumbo Unplugged Live album is just a perfect album for me. And I love listening to it every day-ish um, in the car. Man, well, I'm mad that you sort of kept this under wraps all year. I think I heard you mention it before, but just like in passing. And I so tweeted I didn't know it. How. I know you don't follow me, but I tweeted it. Uh, <laughs> you silly. Jamar, stop. Follow- See, I get your tweets to my phone. I get your notifications to my you phone. Silly. You silly. And probably so I know everything that's going on in your life, <laughs> but you didn't follow me because I uh, put it out you, there. You didn't hint at what an impactful song this is. This might have gotten me through some days. This might have gotten me through. Oh, some yeah, days. well, the whole the whole album is the whole album is great. The whole album is great. So in 2019, it just came out this year. It's a follow-up to the Gumbo album, which I think came out two years ago. I want to say 2016, but it's brilliant. And he recorded all of them. I think they're all on YouTube as well. So you can actually watch them recording all of these with the live instruments. And the harmonies are phenomenal. They're amazing. There's just not, I just can't say enough about this album. He's Grammy nominated now. Go go listen to this album, Gumbo does, Unplugged Live. It's crazy. Does he do, does he do some directing? Because, you know, we're going to need music at the Witness Conference. I'm just saying. Hey, man, don't start nothing. Don't start <laughs> nothing. Don't start nothing we can't finish, okay? <laughs> it's 2019 now. Don't get the people hyped, okay? Hold on. Maybe stretch, boy. You know, we can pray. Hey, we can you pray. never know, man. Hey, look. Yo, it's 2019, man. It's no cap. So you never know what's going to happen. No cap. Okay, pause. Explain that because I heard you say that a couple times, but I think it's significant. It means like no, no lie, no. It's like a, a cultural phrase. It mainly means no lie, but it basically means like no holding back. So no cap on something. But mainly it's like, you know, no flex or, you know, no cap. I'm going to actually do this this year. That's dope. 
I like that though. I like that a lot. You know, we are we still recording. Is this still on the podcast? You just- <laughs> we still on the podcast. I'm telling you, we gotta let the people know. Oh, are you still? Um, hey, look, man, yo, it's youth group stuff, man. It's youth group stuff. Yeah, I, I always listen to Tyler to to because I'm too old to be to be cool. Not that I ever was, but I I definitely can't you keep cool, up bro. on Come the on, lingo. Bro. So yeah, no, I got Uncle Culture. I'm a, I'm gonna embrace that in 2019. Okay. I'm you glad know, you did. That should have been on my list. <laughs> Uncle Culture should have been on my list. Okay, what's number two for you? Number two cultural artifact in the top seven list. Okay, I'm gonna lighten it up a bit with this one, but it's still gonna be controversial. Um. If you're a sports head, and it was only controversial, it's only really controversial after the first round of the college football playoffs. And my number two, in no particular order, of cultural artifacts of 2018 is Notre Dame sports. Ah, okay, ah, okay. Yes, 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 yes. I yes. figured. I figured that was you were gonna include something <laughs> with the Irish in there. You gotta explain it. You gotta explain to the people the connection because yes. people may not know the connection. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, I am an alumnus of the University of Notre Dame. I went there for my undergrad, majored in American Studies, concentration in history and literature, minor in theology, and it was a rough road at first because it was the most homogenous racial environment I had ever been in up to that point. So it took me a long time to adjust to it, but it, I came to love it, man. I mean, every college is unique. Every college has strengths and weaknesses. But when it comes to tradition, Notre Dame does it like I don't know what. So from the moment you step on campus as a student, they embrace you as part of the Notre Dame family. There are all these traditions from where you can't walk up the steps of the main building, the central steps of the main building till you graduate, which way your ring faces um, when you're an undergrad versus a graduate student. Each of your dorms, it's their their single sex dorms, at least when I was there, um, and and each of those dorms operates as sort of a fraternity or sorority in and of themselves. So they have their own traditions, and and, and then the football games and the environment there is incredible. The students stand up the entire game. They only sit during halftime. They want to be that strong thirteenth uh, member of the team uh, that's supporting the the football team on the field. There's the singing of the alma mater at the end. There's touchdown Jesus, all this stuff, right? Now, I didn't know any of this mm. going There's to Rudy, Notre Dame. Rudy as well. <laughs> Rudy, of course. I don't even think I had seen the movie when I enrolled. Um, the thing that stuck out to me about Notre Dame, I was not a football head at that point. Uh, what stuck out to me about Notre Dame was, number one, it was a school that was honestly trying to be honest to its Catholic heritage, which meant that even as a Protestant, i I. Been, I was very familiar with uh, Catholicism, having, having, gone to, having gone to Catholic schools K through eight. I was very familiar with Catholicism, but I was never Catholic. But what I appreciated about Notre Dame is that you could just talk about God anywhere, right? Like the rectors of the dorms mm. were, were priests and nuns. They had uh, a chapel in many of the dorms that had crucifixes in every classroom. Many of the professors prayed before class, and yet it was an elite top tier academic institution. Um, and so that was, was attractive as well. Close to family, all that stuff. So anyway, 2018, um, the women's basketball team won the national championship and they mm-hmm. killed right. it. So it was dramatic fashion, right? It's a great team, bro. That's a great, consistently team. great. They're ranked number two right now, right behind UConn. Their only loss of the season was, it has been to UConn as, as, as we uh, talk right now. And then the way they won was in dramatic fashion. So shout out to uh, one of the players, Arike Agunbowale, who in two back-to-back okay, okay. games, she made a buzzer beater 
uh, baskets that won the game. So um, in the semifinals, they they defeated Connecticut. She shot the basket with one second left in the game, won the game. Then they go to the finals. They go to the finals against Mississippi State Bulldogs. And, you know, I'm, I spend all my time in Mississippi, so we're following Mississippi, Dude, Mississippi State. Mississippi State had a crazy team, too, though. Yes, um, they were oof. insane. They were, they were, it was well-deserved that they were in the championship. And then same player, Agun Bowale, with .1 seconds left, a tenth of a second left, she made the shot, the game-winning shot to win the championship. And it was so dope that in, in back-to-back games, it was just these, these close nail-biter games, and they won it. It was iconic, man. It was beautiful. It was sports at the highest level. And it was so poignant to me because I was there um, back in, I think, 2001. The last time the Notre Dame women's basketball team won, I was an undergrad, and I remember meeting them at the circle when the bus came back at like 2 a.m., from the game and we were out there there's probably 100 150 of us just cheering them on and celebrating we stayed up so it was so cool to see that happen again so shout out to Notre Dame women's basketball and then here's the controversial part I'll make it quick Notre Dame football went undefeated 12 and 0 in the regular season we got crushed by Clemson in the college football playoffs 30 to 3 and it was such yeah, man, a we praying for you bro Man, it was such a tragic end because it was such a, an electric season. We switched uh, starting quarterbacks in the third or fourth game. He was one of the most accurate passers in the entire league. And then to get to the playoffs and just not show up really, you know, just we had, we, 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 we had not been turning the ball over all season, turned the ball over like three times. Uh, it was just, you know, just collapsed in the last game. And all credit to Clemson. They're an incredible team. Uh, but also, Notre Dame had an awesome season, and those are just a couple of the sports. We haven't even talked about hockey or fencing even, um, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun to watch Notre Dame's season this year, so that's my lighthearted attempt. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's dope, man. I, I think you know the really cool part about that is you have an alma mater that you're proud of, that you can rock with, and it's not perfect, but you know that they're striving to be excellent in all things, and maybe even self-critical and changing some things. I love those traditions too. I love those traditions too, because every college has those, but you know, Notre Dame's traditions are extremely rich as well. So man, that's really cool, bro. I, I, I don't, I don't hate on that, man. Your football team, it is what it is, man. You know, it's Clemson and Bama. They always at the top. Yeah, so it is what it is, <laughs> but you know, that's really dope. Especially about the, the women's basketball team, getting the women some love, man. I bro, love that, bro. They, they deserve all the credit. Yeah. So it was dope. Dope, man. Okay. So my number two, my number two, I'm going to come up from a little bit of left field as well. And I'm going to give you guys a comic book. And this is a comic book that did not come out in 2018. It actually came out in 2003. But as I stated, mm. just because it came out in a previous year doesn't mean I can't mention it because I interacted with it and I read it this year. Wow. And it is entitled Superman Red Sun. Okay. Superman <laughs> Red Sun. Okay, here's here's it. Let me paint the picture. Blurred alert. Go for it. Go for Listen, it. Listen, let me let me paint the picture. Okay. So imagine this. Imagine if Superman doesn't land in America, imagine if Superman doesn't land in Kansas, but Superman actually lands in the Soviet Union. And so this is what we call an Elseworld story. And so this is outside of the regular canon, 
but it's an Elseworld story, which means it's a fictitious story, even within the fictional canon of the comic books. And it's basically what would have happened if the way in which we understand our heroes or our villains or the people who we read in the comics was changed drastically and dramatically. And so in this uh, adaptation, Superman actually lands in uh, the Soviet Union. So he lands in the Soviet Union, and so he's nurtured on a farm, but in a foreign country. And so the ideals that he adopts and expresses and the ideals that he fights for are not American capitalistic ideas, but it's actually communism. And so he's very close with Joseph Stalin. He's very close with the people. He fights for socialism. And it's really interesting because the United States, it tells it from both perspectives. Yeah, bro. This is crazy. That's what I'm telling you. This is crazy. I'm trying to put you on. (laughs) And it, it tells the story from both sides. So it tells the story from President Eisenhower's perspective and from Lois Lane's perspective. Actually, it's not Lois Lane. It's Lois Luther because she marries Lex Luther instead of Clark Kent. Okay. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it's crazy. There's a whole bunch of different things that are really cool about the story. It's like nice little flips of some of the characters that you're familiar with. So if you're in any way familiar with Superman, um, I don't want to spoil anything, but Wonder Woman, Batman, if you're very familiar with them at any way, shape, or form, you would love Superman Red Sun because it's just this really unique take on what would the world be if Superman didn't land in America and espouse American ideals? What if he landed in another country and was used as a tool there, but had the same sense of belief in their ideals instead of our own? So it's my favorite Superman story probably ever. Um, I haven't grown up reading a ton of Superman comics in particular. So Superman Red Sun, that's my number two on the cultural artifacts list. You were right. That was unexpected. <laughs> but cool. I told you. you. Got me interested in it. Is it a graphic novel or you have to buy the whole series? Um, I think it's an it's just in three issues. So it should be you should be able to find a trade on Amazon. So if you look on Amazon, you should be able to find Superman Red Sun. Um there. It's it's really, really good. It's imaginative. And it gives greater insight into the characters. And Superman is the type of character that you have to kind of come up with something very unique for people to be grabbed by him. Because you kind of heard all the Superman stories, you feel like. And so, in my opinion, the best Superman stories um, are the ones that kind of take some liberty with the character and put the character in some very interesting positions that it hasn't been in before. And so... That one, and then also, if you're looking for a bonus, this is a plus one. This is not on my list, but All Star Superman as well is one of the top Superman runs, and that's another Superman comic that I read this year in my free time. Um, earlier this year, I was able to to carve out some time to catch up on some comics. So yeah, All Star Superman is good as well, but Superman Red Sun is definitely my favorite. <laughs> Superman that's story wild. I know the nerds are geeking out. That's awesome. Do you? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. They may disagree, but I just, I think it's just classic, iconic Superman story. <laughs> well, mine is, my next one is, um, I don't know. It's, it's, in a way, it's funny, but it's also sad if you really think about it. But it is what I call existing while black. Existing while black. Okay. All right. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, this is actually a really good one, Jamar. Yeah. This is really good. So in 2018, we were inundated with all these incidents of where black people were pathologized and criminalized 
for doing normal, everyday activities. I appreciate CNN put together a partial, I emphasize partial list of some of Bro, the that things, list was crazy. <laughs> some of the things that black people that that white people called the cops on when they saw black people doing it. Here's a partial list: operating a lemonade store, golfing too slowly, waiting for a friend at Starbucks, barbecuing at the park, working out at a gym, campaigning door to door, moving into an apartment, mowing the wrong lawn, shopping for prom clothes, napping in a university common room, asking for directions, not waving while leaving an Airbnb, redeeming a coupon, selling bottled water on a sidewalk, eating lunch on a college campus, riding in a car with a white grandmother, babysitting two white children, on and on and on it goes. Bro, that list is crazy. <laughs> and, 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 and that wasn't even a, that was only a partial list of the partial list. <laughs> um, and so I call it existing while black because there's nothing we can do, no matter how mundane innocuous or every day where we are not suspect from a certain group of people. And there's actually, I think, a history to this. I think you can make a connection between what we're seeing in 2018 and stuff we saw as far back as like 1868. And so if you go back to the Reconstruction era and especially post-Reconstruction after the Civil War, you had folks passing vagrancy laws which are essentially saying that if you don't have papers which show that you are gainfully employed and uh, that are signed off by a white employer, then you could be arrested. And I think the ideology behind that, even though the practice has changed somewhat, if we look at Ferguson, they were getting ticketed for things like jaywalking as a way to generate Mm -hmm. revenue for the city. So there's still contemporary parallels. But I think there's um, even if the practices themselves have changed, the ideology hasn't. And the ideology is that if you are a black person in some space that white people deem as white, then you're automatically suspect. And really, you're automatically suspect as a black person or a person of color in general if you're anywhere that um, certain white people think belongs to them. So again, could be a university common room, could be a Starbucks, could be a park, and you're not doing anything wrong. You're just doing it while you're black. Yep. <laughs> and that's the problem for some people, not all people, but enough. And then here's the other thing, the, the knee-jerk reaction is first to confront with ugly words and racial slurs and things like go back to your country or you can't be here or something that that undermines or delegitimizes your dignity and your presence there. And then the second reaction is to call the cops. That's very dangerous when you're dealing with black people, right? We know how that turns out from 2012, 2014, 2015, 2016, and the slew of uh, police-related deaths involving black people. So. It, it just it's it's flabbergasting how even if you have a problem with certain people in certain spaces that your your gut reaction is to pick up the phone and call 911 like we need to be handcuffed and taken to jail or worse in order to quote unquote contain the problem It's not black people's problem. It's your problem. Whoever wants to call the cops in these mundane situations and automatically assume suspicion and threat. Uh, because you see a black person here. So one of my cultural artifacts is just existing while black. It's like, is there anything we can do that's not going to be perceived as a threat or an intrusion? Come on. Bro, that is so, that is such a good one. 
And it's one I wouldn't have thought of. And so this is why I love this list, bro, because we come from such different places. But I wouldn't have thought of the three that you just mentioned. And especially this one, because I think all of us can um, can think of a time, if you are a Black person who is listening, you can think of a time where you were kind of singled out. You look like you didn't belong. People can communicate that you don't belong, not just by saying it, not just by yelling a slur at you or kicking you out but by their mannerisms, their tone, their questions, their suspicion. And so I think we're always entering into stores, especially even when I was Christmas shopping. I'm entering into stores. I'm thinking about making sure that I have a list beforehand. That's like a huge thing for me. Because when I enter into a store, I don't want to be perceived as wandering. Like there are certain stores I don't want to wander around in because I feel that that might lead to suspicion. Mm. And you know, there, there, there are just times like there was, there was a, a period of time. It sounds silly, but there was a period of time where I hadn't had a haircut, and so because I hadn't had a haircut, you know, the natural thing for me is to put on a do rag, and so I would naturally just put on a do rag because waves ain't ain't hitting at the moment, and I'm wolfing or doing whatever, and so I'm thinking about like putting on a do rag, and I'm like, no, I can't do that but I can't just go with my hair looking any kind of way. So I literally like picked out my hair, like picked it out to where it's like a mini fro. That's how long I've, I've been wolfing. So I picked it out to where it's like a mini fro and like shaped it and arranged it in a way that would look less threatening. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I know. it's crazy, man. Like, it. and people are like, what? Why would you do that? I'm like, because it's crazy out here and I don't know what people are on. It's the holidays. I'm just trying to shop for my family. I'm just trying to get them a few gifts. And people aren't going to recognize that. They're going to see me and then question. They're yep. going to see me and think about it. And so, bro, man, look, that's such a good one, bro. I was just real quick. I was with my uh, 11-year-old nephew, and he had a hoodie on. And I he, he had his hood up because it was freezing cold, right? Um, and while we were walking into this place, and then when we get inside, he keeps it on. And I had forgotten, I, I wasn't thinking about it. I had forgotten to check. And then I just glance over a few minutes in while we're in this store and he still got his hoodie up and bro, I about jumped down his throat. I was like, take your hood off inside. Hmm, wow. Like, I don't care. He's 11 years old. He's going to be perceived as older. He's already a bigger kid. And so he'll be perceived as a threat. And, and those are the kinds of things I hate that we have to do it, but I would feel remiss if we didn't. And it's just, a, again, another example of existing while black, how how carefully we have to comport ourselves in a society that has been built and constructed around white supremacy and the vestiges of that still persist today. So, yeah. Man, that's such a good one. That's heavy, but it's true, bro. That's appropriate roots right there. That's appropriate roots <laughs> for this list. Okay, my number three is a person. And this person I have not, I don't believe, talked about her on this podcast but her name is Martha J. Simmons, and she is the leading voice, the leading writer over the past three to four decades on Black preaching in America. Martha huh. Simmons is huh. incredible. And so I've talked about Black preaching a lot on the podcast. We had Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert to talk about his book, Exodus Preaching, which is incredible and didn't make my list. And I don't know how it didn't make my list, but it is what it is. But that's an incredible book. Um, also, Dr. Frank Thomas, we had him on to talk about his latest book, How to Preach a Dangerous Sermon, and also his PhD program in sacred rhetoric and African-American preaching. But Dr. Simmons is so amazing because she has been doing this for decades. 
And as a black woman, there are stereotypes that are hurled around all the time in black churches about whether or not women should be allowed to preach and speak and women should be allowed to exercise their full gifts. And even coming from a place where there's questions, we've talked about it before, especially on the TT episode of Gender Apartheid, but where there are just so many questions about you know, how we handle women and how we treat women with dignity and how we allow women to lead us even in places where as men that's frowned upon or men that's looked on with disdain, just due to the vestiges of misogyny and patriarchy. So Martha Simmons is someone I've been following for a while. And while I love Dr. Frank Thomas's Periscope every Monday morning, I believe it's at 8 a.m. Eastern, uh, I regularly watch uh, Dr. Martha Simmons' Um, on her Facebook lives as well throughout the week. And they're amazing. She gives so much insight into basic things like how you would approach Advent in a black church that doesn't do liturgy. Like just very practical, hands-on, wow. basic That's things. Awesome. Like what, how would you preach? How would you sing the songs? How would you teach people to sing the songs? She talks about in, in one of those, um, in one of those Facebook lives, not prematurely getting to the conclusion, not prematurely getting to the celebration. If you know you're going to preach across weeks and talk about the Advent season, don't just have people shouting. Have people reflecting. Think about how you're communicating these things. And one of the books that she uh, most recently released, I believe it was in 2012 or 2013, it's called Doing the Deed, The Mechanics of 21st Century Preaching. And it has helped me out so much. Also, a classic that she edited with Dr. Frank Thomas and Dr. Gardner-Taylor is Preaching with Sacred Fire, an anthology of African-American sermons from 1750 to the present, which is also an incredible work. So I've learned so much from Martha Simmons. I would love to have her on the podcast. I know she's been on June 3. I would love to have her on the podcast. would love to have her at the conference, but she is just a hero of mine and I've learned so much from her. I love that. I love that. And 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 we are um trying to learn from from different voices and different people. We're trying to a honor the black church. I think um for me personally, one of the things that these past few years have done is highlight the importance of the black church as a space of affirmation, of dignity, of assertion for black people and 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 that that we're not beyond that. You don't you don't you don't move beyond the black church. You don't grow out of the black church. It, it has been the root and the foundation of so much of who we are in the present day, even if you're not directly connected to a particular congregation. So I love that you pointed her out. I love that she's a woman as well, a black woman in particular, who so often uh, unfairly get overlooked, um, especially when we're talking about something like homiletics and uh, the gifts and skills that 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 they can contribute in this area. So there's a whole richness there that I think is mm. as yet untapped by a huge group of believers. And we do that to our def, uh, detriment and the impoverishment of our understanding of the faith. So I'm going to check that and out. I don't sure. just want, listen, this is what I want to say. Like no, no disrespect to Dr. Gilbert and Dr. Thomas and any of Dr. Cleophus LaRue and any of the amazing black preaching scholars that we have today. But Dr. Martha Simmons is the preeminent black preaching scholar. Uh, she is the preeminent. I know that's like, we're like, what? No, she's the leading scholar on black preaching. I think that needs to be said. She's not someone that should be included. 
She's someone who should be always leading the conversation. And while she may not have the profile of some of the other names and she may not have had the same opportunities as some of the other names, uh, Dr. Martha Simmons is unimpeachable when it comes to Black preaching. So I, I felt that there needed to be an edit on my comment. She's not just a great scholar or one of the leading scholars. She is the scholar on Black got preaching. You, got you. Got you. That's good, man. That's really good. Um Next up for me, we kind of going back to to the roots and the political aspect, but um, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation as Supreme Court justice and Mm. along with that, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony about uh, the sexual assault that that she says she endured at his hands. Okay, we're on number four, right? So this is starting number four. So this is your number four. My number four. And this was a huge cultural moment for me because... I can only remember a few instances where so many people on a national scale were focused on one particular event in national politics. And when Christine Blasey Ford gave her testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee before the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, I felt like that was one of the moments where the entire country really just stopped and listened. And when you heard her testimony, oh my goodness, it was raw. It was visceral, it was precise, and it was it was unforgettable. And I'll never forget the feeling that I had. It was like I had just drank a gallon of wet cement, and it was just hanging heavy in my gut. Um, to listen to her, her story of this horrific incident that she says occurred when they were in high school at a party, and uh, Brett Kavanaugh was in a room and held her down, all the details... Um, if you, if you followed it, if you haven't followed it, look it up, but be prepared. Um, and so I couldn't get past the courage of this woman and of so many other women who have stepped forward, uh, but especially Blazy Ford to do that where, you know, you could see pictures and you would see photographers, like dozens of photographers with their cameras trained upon her and video cameras recording her every word and doing it in front of the Senate, I couldn't imagine the pressure or the strength that it took. Um, And knowing, knowing full well that she gets nothing out of this. She gets only grief out of this. Uh, She hasn't been able to go back to her home. She's worried about her safety, her family's safety, Um, all of this. She didn't do it for a reward. Um, And so whatever you feel (laughs) or however persuaded you are about it, uh, it was this moment where we stopped. And I hope that reasonable citizens took stock and really tried to consider um, what women go through, not just Christine Blasey Ford, but so many women. Uh, Beth Moore, uh, who's a a Bible teacher, she came out with this really uh, poignant letter talking about all the times that she, she says she just kind of smiled or brushed off the sort of sexual harassment that she endured among uh, evangelicals. And she said, you know, I mean, she's just so humble, but she said that contributed to an environment where those things could persist. um, And she didn't want to do that anymore. And I think that was just another powerful testimony. Um, And then for Kavanaugh to get confirmed in the midst of that was so deflating uh, for me as a citizen to see, like, listen, I understand you're Republicans in control. You want a conservative on the Supreme Court. Okay, but guess what? There are a lot of conservatives 
who don't have credible allegations of sexual assault against them. So can we right. get one of those, you know, and argue about that? Um, but it, 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 it impressed upon me as a man how much women go through that I have no idea about because we don't, we're not in the same sort of physical um, uh, threat and, and, and state of harm that so many women are on an everyday basis and how these events that guys can just joke and laugh about will, will, will stay with women and can traumatize women for their entire lives. Um, and I wish that our, our nation's leaders had done better and, and confirmed someone else. Uh, but it was one of these moments that, that in, in this Me Too era makes you pause and take stock of, of how we treat women, uh, what we yeah. excuse in men, and how we need to get better. Man, it was crazy. I remember I was traveling during the time of the, that testimony and both her testimony and then also Judge Kavanaugh's testimony as well. And it was overwhelming just how much, um, how obtuse the conversation was, <laughs> I guess I can say, and how offensive some of the comments were that I was seeing from people who are believers, who profess Christ publicly. It was stunning um, to listen to and to hear. And regardless of whether or not you would say it meets your standard of believability. You know, I think it's I think it's very funny. Like when we say things like believe women, I think people assume wrongly that that means that we should believe without corroboration. And I think that's not only condescending, um, but that's also a standard we don't apply to other people. And when we mention things that have happened to us, when I mention things that have happened. Um, about the school I came from, my alma mater. People don't say, well, are you sure that's really what happened? Is that really what happened? No, you guys accept it. And you you display empathy because you believe me. You believe me when I say, this is what I encountered at this place. And I think it's just fascinating to me and saddening that we do not extend that same standard of believability to women who are credibly presenting these things. And we don't understand trauma. And there's just so many things, man. And it was a great opportunity for the church. Um, and I feel like it was bungled. There was a church locally. Um, I'll even say this. There was a church locally in Pensacola that held like, a, I, I want to say a prayer rally for Judge Kavanaugh, I want to say. Wow. Um, they posted some on their social media. They were fasting and praying for him because the devil was attacking him and all this. Yeah, man, it's just trash. Um and it was saddening to see people stoop to that level. But, you know, after 2016 and after many of the things that we've seen as far as the callousness of the response to dead black bodies in the street, it was not surprising. And so the church has to reckon with its history and the church has to reckon not just with its past, but also with its present as well. Or the future will continue the mistakes that we seem to be intent on making right now and continue the abuse, sadly, um, that is is characteristic in some of our church circles. And so we have a lot to repent repent from, and we have a lot to um, ask for forgiveness about uh, from the people who we've harmed. But grace is, is endless. Grace gives us the freedom to walk into the light and stay in the light because that's where Christ is. But it's, it's whether or not we're going to actually do that. And that seems to be difficult for us. So for all those reasons and more, I think you're right, bro. That was... Um, that was a tough time for a lot of us to watch and to um, and to experience, and I can't even imagine how tough it is for survivors as well. 
Hmm. Well, what you got, man? Is there more roots or do we get a breather? (laughs) A semi-breather. Number four is the score, a movie score. Okay. Okay. From the movie, If Beale Street Could Talk, directed by Barry Jenkins. Let me tell you something, man. This score is holy, bro. This score is so crazy. I'm not talking about a soundtrack. I'm talking about the score. So this is actually the sound underneath the film as it's taking place. Now, I have not seen If Bill Street Could Talk, but everyone was talking about the way in which the score moved them, and it's likely going to get an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score. And so I decided to sit down and listen to it. And I'm a big movie score fan. Like I love the score from the Adjustment Bureau, which is an obscure Matt Damon movie, a bad Matt Damon movie. But I just love the score. Love the score from Black Panther. Love the score from Inception, uh, Gladiator. I mean, there's just so many of these really great movie scores. And If Bill Street Could Talk might be the best out of all of them. There's something about the strings and the bass and the way it swells, and the way it sounds so, I want to say mature, it sounds like love. It sounds like true, authentic, mm. unvarnished, like untampered with love. And there's intensity, and there's passion, and there's angst, and there's brokenness near the end of it. And I don't know how the movie ends. I haven't had the opportunity to read the book by James Baldwin, but this score is making me want to run to the theater and see the film because it's just so moving. And it puts me in the mood of love and emotion and embrace. And of course, yes, blackness as well, because that's central to the theme of the movie. So my number four is If Bill Street Could Talk, the movie score. It's crazy, man. That's awesome because I listen to movie scores while I work and write. So I'm putting that on my list. That's awesome. Do that. Okay, number five for you. Okay, so for number five for me, this one is really personal. And so it's not like a cultural artifact. It's more just like an important event in 2018. I don't know if that's allowed, but I got the mic, so I'm going to say it anyway. You wrote a book, Uh bro. Come on, tell them. That's not it. That's not even on my list. Oh, it's not it? Okay, all right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Passing comprehensive exams. Oh. People, oh, this bro's a nerd, bro. I love it. I love it, man. Yo, you take your history that. craft like mad seriously, bro. I hope the rest of them think so. But folks, <laughs> folks who aren't in a PhD program are like, what? You know, or if you're a spouse of somebody who is, you're like, okay, I get it. Um, but it was huge, man. You had to read. I had a book list of probably about 300 books, and when you read, you put that in air quotes, right? Because The way you read an academic history book is you play really close attention to the introduction, which is anywhere from 12 to 20 pages usually. You look at the the conclusion, and then you sort of skim the chapter. So it's not like reading word for word every page, but still 300 of anything is a lot. And then you have to write notes on it, and you sort of have to memorize the broad outline of each book. Because in comprehensive exams, I took in my program one exam in each field, U.S. history since 1877, and then two of my Mm. concentrations, which were Latin American theology and then uh, uh, African American history. And so you have separate reading lists for each of those areas, and then you get um, 
anywhere from one to three questions that are essay questions and you just have to write and you basically do what's called a historiography and say, well, here's what this author said. Here's what that author says. Here's where they agree. Here's where they disagree. And you got to have, you know, 12, 15, 20 books, perhaps even in a single answer off the dome. So it was an intensely, um, I mean, I had to shut down everything for the you entire You did, bro. Song. Like, you you kept talking about it. I was like, bro, right. this thing must be heavy. It was ridiculous. I had stacks of books around. I, was, I had binders full of notes. It was the most intimidating standard test I've ever taken. And it's not standardized. It's a standard test in that everybody has to take it in the program, but it's tailored to each person. But it was the most intimidating uh, because if you don't pass, you don't go on, right? Like, this... This is what qualifies you to become a knowledge producer. Um, because before that, when you're in your coursework, you're still consuming knowledge. You're essentially a master's student. When you pass comprehensive exams, that signifies that you know the field well enough to start creating new knowledge and new information, doing your own research and adding to the field. Um, so that was a massive undertaking. Yeah, I did it while writing the book, The Color of Compromise. So I was doing double duty. But yeah, I was doing it while I was writing The Color of Compromise. And so my, my uh. it, it was all related, but it was still, you know, a lot going on at once. So 2018 was an intense year for me uh, in terms of working. And then just being able to pass comps, I I can't remember the last time I felt that sense of relief regarding an academic endeavor. And so now I'm on to the dissertation phase. You'll be hearing more about that, I'm sure, in 2019. But you have to jump through this hoop. And uh, I may have stumbled, bumbled, and fumbled, but I got through it. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. I remember you were talking about it so much. I was like, bruh, what's, what's going to happen? But uh Man, that's awesome. It sounds exciting, actually, to be able to cross that threshold and know that you're validated to be a knowledge producer. That's really dope, man. It is. And I know we 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 coming up on time here, but I'll just be honest. One of my Nah man, yo, you know, it's this it's PTM, it's end of the year. Let's go, man. We got time. Come on. It's one of those things, I think we all feel this in various fields from time to time, but it's that imposter syndrome, right? Like yes. I still Yes. I think I've only used the Twitter story and hashtag one time, maybe. And, and, and I don't use it because I don't feel worthy, right? Like, I'm just being honest with y'all. Um, That's real. It just feels like I don't know enough or I haven't written enough or I haven't been steeped in this enough to call myself a historian. You'll almost always hear me refer, refer to myself as a historian in training or a student of history rather than a historian. I think anybody who's gotten a PhD could probably relate, but even just, you know, any folks who are in a particular line of work or ministry, you maybe have felt this at times. And I know it's bogus. I know it's not true. I know I can, it's a matter of how hard you work, not just how smart you are, whatever, whatever, but it's still there. And it's just like, it's almost like a spiritual battle that you have to deal with to say, no, I'm here for a reason. I'm worthy to be here and I can start acting like it. So I'm still trying to grow into this hmm. this whole profession, you know. Uh, so passing comps was was a big part of that, but I still don't quite feel like I've turned the corner to where I can call myself a legit historian. Man, that's real, bro. I think all of us feel that in some way, shape or form or another. And then also you compound that with the extra scrutiny that's placed on you because of your blackness and because of the subject matter that you're you're that's doing right. undoubtedly 
um, it leads to those feelings. But man, you legit, bro. I don't, I don't have any credentials to say it, but you legit. And I always learn from you. And I know the audience learns from you as well. So man, walk in what God has called you to walk in, bro. That's it. That's and it. can't nobody keep you from it. That's it. Just do what God has called you to do. And he'll give you the strength and the confidence that you need to accomplish whatever he has purposed for you. So I'm just trying to lean into that reality, regardless of what the guild or the discipline says. Hmm. That's good, bro. That's a lesson for all of us too. All right. So my number five, man. Um, okay. We're going to get into some serious ones here. These are some serious, I mean, not necessarily all very serious as in subject matter, but they're serious as far as huge things that happened in 2018. And the first one is a book. Um, this is number five on my list. It is called Heavy by Kiese Lehman. And okay. Bro, That's Mississippi guy. Mississippi in the house. My man, my man, my brother. This book is crazy. It is a memoir. And he talks about the correlation between food and sexual violence and how food was used as a numbing tool for him as he was abused at a young age and was also used as a numbing tool throughout his family. He chronicles the story of his mother and his grandmother and other women within his family and how many times their coping mechanism for sexual trauma was food and unhealthy food. Um, He chronicles that in his own life, um, how he turned to food. It is searing. And I want to read just a paragraph from the book. And it goes like this, and I quote, Our superpower, I was told since I was a child, was perseverance, the ability to survive no matter how much they took from us. I never understood how surviving was our collective superpower when white folk made sure so many of us didn't survive. And those of us who did survive practiced bending so much that breaking seemed inevitable. That's all I can give you, bro. This book is wild crazy. That was also my audition for the audiobook of Color of Compromise, and I didn't make it, but it's fine. I just want to let y'all know what my audition just joking. was. Just joking. Nah, but yes. man, this book is... I love how he talks about his relationship with his mother and how fraught that was. There was one moment in the book that was so poignant. He talked about how his mother was on the bounce check list at the grocery store. So they actually had her face right behind the counter to say, don't accept checks from this person. And so they went up to the line and she was getting ready to write a check and he grabbed her and said, let's go, let's go. And this is a kid, grabbed her and sees his mother, who is a local activist, who was someone who was highly involved in, in the political sphere in their local city on a board that said, don't accept checks from her and how embarrassing that was and how they coped with it and how they looked around and saw other people had stuff and they didn't. It's just, it's, it is truly pun intended. It is a heavy book and it is something that I feel like we should all read. There is one more portion of the book I do want to talk about. I'm just thinking of so many things that stood out in the book, but there's one more portion where he talks about his experience with the Baptist church and how whenever he went to the Baptist church, he didn't feel that it was authentic because the man who was standing up there, it looked like his life didn't match what he was proclaiming. But he said what did feel authentic was his interaction with what he calls the home mission, which was his grandmother's, basically his grandmother's small group, where they would come together, read the scriptures, they would pray, they would sing, and they would do acts of hospitality for people. 
And he said, I felt authentic. And I don't think Kiese is a Christian, but he said, I felt authentic appreciation for the home mission, but I didn't for this missionary Baptist church. One seemed authentic, one seemed real, and the other seemed like a show. So look, man, y'all gotta get y'all gotta get this book. Kiese Lehman, heavy. He also wrote another book of mine that's one of my favorites, but it's from years ago. It's um How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Weird title, but it's a collection of essays that's amazing. And then Long Division as well is another one of his books. It's crazy. He's a great writer, bro. Yo, look, nothing but love, man. Uh, he was actually, he is actually a visiting professor at the University of Mississippi teaching writing. And what I also love about him is he doesn't distance himself from Mississippi with all the stigma that comes with it. He's invested uh, in the youth in Mississippi and and teaches young kids how to write and is just really available for those kinds of opportunities. I've never personally had the pleasure of meeting him, but it's absolutely on my list of one of the things I would love to to have the opportunity to do uh, this upcoming year. And I love that you mentioned that. Uh, the art coming out of a state like Mississippi, it, it has always come out of uh, out of Mississippi, is unreal. I think of Jasmine Ward. I think of uh, the man, hate Jasmine Ward, bro. Jasmine <laughs> Ward is killing the game. You know? Oh um, man, she's a crazy writer. Yes. So I think of Jasmine Ward. I think of Angie Thomas, who wrote "The Hate You Give," which was made into a movie. She's a Mississippian too. Uh, you got folks like Oprah, of course. You got the Delta Blues. You got incredible art coming out of Black people who are from or live in Mississippi. So I'm so glad you shouted out uh, Heavy. That is an incredible book. I have it. I haven't read it yet. But you gotta I'm ready read that, to- man. It's tough. It's a tough one to get through because it's just so honest and transparent and brave. But it's it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're number six. Okay, my number six, this is going to strike people maybe a little bit out of left field because probably most people forgot about it. It was big when it happened, but probably most people forgot about it. Back in January, there was a credible ballistic missile threat. Oh, yeah, this is great for you. You went on CNN. Yeah, of course. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so, you know, long story short, it turned out to be a false alarm, but we ain't know that. For the better part of an hour, okay. So again, we oh, we man. the only thing that my family spends money on is trips. Like we we travel. My my son, he's been to more places by the age of eight than I had been probably by how I was twenty eight. Right. Um, this is what we do, and so we had saved, and we actually took a trip to Hawaii, and we were there in January. It was the off season, rates were lower, blah blah blah. Um, it was the last day of our trip. And we get these these text messages. Actually, my wife got it. We both had iPhones. We both had the same service. I don't know why she got it and I didn't. But she got it. And it said, ballistic missile threat. And the thing that got us was, it not only said ballistic missile, it says, this is not a drill. And like, you read that and you're like, okay, this is not a drill. This is the real thing. We have a nuclear bomb headed toward the tiny island where we are. And by the way, there's not a whole lot of transportation routes on these islands, which means if there's any holdup on any highway anywhere, everybody's stuck. And that's what happened. Everybody was on the road when they found this um, alarm. And so you had no place to go. And it was it was probably about 45 minutes from that first text message 
to when they finally absolutely confirmed that it was a false alarm. And if you can imagine thinking that you're about to be vaporized by a nuclear bomb for the better part of an hour, I mean, that's what it was like. We were like, um, you know, where do we go to evacuate? Is there any place that's safe? Uh, we got a message from the the emergency management association that said stay indoors. Then we got a message coming over the PA from the hotel that said go outside. And so we didn't know what to do. We didn't know if there was a fire in the hotel or what. Um, and then it was really weird. It was surreal in the sense of you remember these little things, right? Like I remember getting my wedding ring. I remember thinking about, well, what am I going to wear for a nuclear missile attack? You know, do I, do I put on pants? Do I put Bro, on my- what? It's just random, right? And then, um, but I was strangely at peace too, because number one, I knew I believed in God. So I was like, okay, whatever. If now's my time, now's my time. I know where I'm going, um, which was like really real. You know, you talk about assurance and whatnot, but when you thought that you were going to die, and there was this odd sense of peace, like, okay, okay. Like, there's a lot more I wanted to do in life, but I know it's better to be at home with the Lord than right here. And the other thing was, since I had my wife and my, my son with me, I was like, I got everybody I want to be with. And so if I'm going to die, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's the best case scenario in the sense that you're with your family. Um, so that was really weird. But then the other thing that came about when we finally figured out Thank God. Oh, by the way, this is in the midst of a geopolitical struggler struggle where the president is is playing games of brinkmanship with North Korea. Right, and so right. That's what was, made it so real. Yeah. Is you're like, bruh, this is really happening. <laughs> yes, it was right in the middle of all that, where like Kim Jong-un is like, no, I'm gonna press this button, and and, and the president's like, no, I'm gonna press this button. And so you're like, okay, this president done got us killed. He vaporized the state. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. And I was so I mad. was worried, man. I remember when it happened, I was getting my, I was getting something changed in my car. And right as I walked into the waiting room, I get all these tweets. And they're talking about ballistic missile threat and all this. And then all of a sudden, I remembered you're in Hawaii. <laughs> I was like, wait, <laughs> what what is what is going on and i just remember thinking like man this is a wrap and i thought the same thing that i thought recently when i saw this blue light in i believe it was manhattan in new york city yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so the sky lit up blue i'm like yo so how far till it gets to pensacola like how long bro i thought how long I until thought... it gets to the aliens <laughs> I get the Look, man, I, it's never anything good with the blue light. So I was like, yo, this is an alien invasion. I'm just trying to figure out, like, how much time do we have? You know, I just as men, we kind of yes. think like that. Like, yo, so it's probably going to be two days, I'm guessing. I think we might yeah. have enough food for a day and a half. I don't know. Like, that's crazy, bro. I can't imagine. Well, it was just like, like you just had to go through the process of, what if I die in the next few minutes? And that was, that was wild, but it led to, so I remember calling you or texting you or like, um, I'm here. Should I write like an op-ed about it? And you're like, yeah, man, go for it. So I wrote an op-ed for CNN. That's exactly how I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, go for it. Yeah, sure, bro. (laughs) It's your world. No biggie, whatever. Um, so yeah, so I wrote it and then, uh, they later contacted me to actually go on CNN uh, the 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 actual show t- television and so that was my first 
hopefully not last, but so far my only um, appearance on CNN was to talk about what it was like to actually be in Hawaii during this incredible ballistic missile threat. So that made my top cultural artifacts of 2018. Man, it was crazy because I remember you got to let people know the prophecy because I told people, I was like, look, we're going to get Jamar on CNN in 2019. And everybody in the staff laughed at me. I said, just give me two years. We're going to get Jamar on CNN. They laughed at me. You laughed at me, but God did it a year early. Come on, church. I don't have a church up in here in PT. Come on, church. A year early. Now it's through a, a fake ballistic missile attack, but you know what? It don't matter how God does it. It matters that he does it. It comes to pass. That's all I'm saying. But, yo, that was a crazy situation, but we were super proud of you to see you on CNN, man. I remember recording that segment and taking out my phone and recording it and doing all kinds of stuff. I'm like, I know this dude. This is nuts. I'm going to try to get it on the show notes if we can. But, uh, but yeah, man, appreciate your support and concern. But what's next for you for Cultural Artifacts? It is a movie, and not the movie you're thinking of. I don't think it's the movie you're thinking of. It is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I'm glad you brought it up. Yes, that was a late entry. Yo, listen, man. It's an animated movie about a black Spider-Man, half black, half Latino Spider-Man, Miles Morales. And listen, as a comic book fan, this movie touched all the right points. It was drawn and animated in a way that was so groundbreaking, literally meant to look like a comic book came to life. Yes. Um, The story was excellent. Um, Just kind of the relationship between Miles and his dad, uh, Jefferson, which is interesting because his name is Jefferson Davis. I don't know why that happened, but I guess that was a miss in the comics, but his name is Jefferson Davis. I am always shocked that that's the case, but it is what it is. And his relationship also with his uncle as well. It's crazy fun. Um, There are some scenes in this movie that are on par with any scene in any movie of 2018 and any comic book movie, superhero movie, whatever you want to say that has ever been made. Um, I still love Black Panther more, but I have to say that Spider-Verse was crazy. And the thing that really put it over the top for me is the culture just leaps off the screen. From the shoes that he's wearing to the music that he's listening to, from the cultural handshakes that he exchanges with people as he's casually walking down the street, um, to the way in which he pronounces things, how he code switches in and out, uh, just some of the things he knows, what he says, man, it is brilliant. It's ridiculously smart. And if you haven't seen it, it's not just for kids, even though it's animated. It's for adults and families and couples it is guaranteed to be something that you really enjoy. So Into the Spider-Verse is my number six. And I won't spoil anything else about it because we're going to do a spoiler episode for our Patreon listeners. So there you go for that in the next week. So because we love you guys and we want to do more things for you in 2019. So if you're not a patron, sorry, but this will just be for our <laughs> Patreon subscribers. We're going to do a full spoilers with some special guests. 
And uh, we hope you guys enjoy that. So I'll save my thoughts for then. But I know you saw it as well, Jamar, and you loved it. Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, you can still become a patron. Uh, I think there's a link on the Pass the Mic Twitter, Twitter feed. No, no, um, no, no more. We shut it down. We shut down all our patrons. You a lie. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> He's like, how are we going to shut down Patreon? Like, how are we going to cap Patreon? You talk about no cap and we going to cap Patreon. I'm like, I'm no. <laughs> uh, You be wilding. But yeah, the film was amazing, bro. I went with um, my, my two nephews and my son. So it's three black boys. And the ways their eyes just lit up at the screen and seeing Miles Morales, an Afro-Latino, um, it was just amazing. And it was so 21st century, bro. It yeah, was just yeah. so contemporary. Like I felt old watching the movie. I'm going to be honest with you. I felt old because it was very much a a young person's uh, interpretation. Miles is a high schooler and it's, it's, it, it feels like he's a high schooler in, in all the best yeah. ways in the sense that, you know, he's struggling to figure out his, his own identity as he's growing and maturing. And then he has all these powers and then he's embroiled in this cosmic, you know, intergalactic kind of uh, story and all of that going on while he's just trying to Which is to almost a, a footnote to the movie. It yeah. doesn't even really, it matters, but it doesn't right. in a way that's refreshing to where you care more about his relationship with his dad and with his uncle that's right. than with you know, the the multiverse or the collider or kingpin. It's like, well, you know, I mean that's important, but you care more about the drama and the and the interpersonal relationship between the characters themselves than about this massive world ending event. Exactly. It's a it's a coming of age story that happens to be a superhero movie rather than the other way around. Um and the way I would liken it is is that Creed is a love story uh that happens to use boxing. Um, as a vehicle you know what i'm saying so yes. it, mm-hmm. it's it clearly matters it propels the story it's it's sort of the the through line of the narrative but what you really care about are the characters and the relationships to one another it was just phenomenally done i'm absolutely going to see it another time at least in the theater if not twice um and when it comes out streaming you know i'm gonna buy that mug as soon as it comes out so definitely go see it if you haven't Yes, I have to take my brother and my sister to see that one. It's just crazy. Um, I'll go ahead and give my last one because I know your last one is is what I think it is. So <laughs> I'll go ahead and give my last one. And my last one is a TV show, Atlanta Season 2. There you go again. Okay. Look, man, y'all be sleeping on Atlanta because it was different than Season 1. But Atlanta is such a groundbreaking, fun, quirky, genre-bending masterpiece. And Donald Glover did not take any steps backward in season two. He actually introduced a theme called Robin Season. And that theme is throughout all of the episodes. And there are some incredibly funny episodes like Barbershop. And I think every man, a black man, can identify with the barbershop episode in some way, shape, or form. And then there are creepy horror-filled episodes like Teddy Perkins, which is this mind trip of a story about Darius who meets someone who looks and talks like Michael Jackson, but there's no commercial breaks. And so you feel like you're trapped in there with Darius and he's hiding secrets. 
and it's like horror and suspense and a thriller and there's violence and it's just it's wild crazy um and then the last episode as well um that i would love to talk about is the episode which was an origin story for Ern and Al's the second to the last episode of the season i'm forgetting off the top of my head i don't remember what it is but it's kind of their origin story which sets the table for the season finale and kind of some dialogue at the end the very last scene of that season which was powerful brotherhood family man it's atlanta it's crazy because i never really thought that atlanta could repeat season 1's excellence but it really does and a lot of people are like well it's not better than season 1 nothing's better than season 1 of atlanta <laughs> if it just kept the same standard it was going to be a masterpiece and it did and i would say there are a couple of episodes in season 2 that are more than likely um the best episodes of this of the series so far i'm thinking of alligator man teddy perkins um, and, and a couple of others as well, which are debatable. I think those two are pretty much the two best episodes of Atlanta ever. So if you just have been sitting down and just kind of, ah, I'm going to check out Atlanta when it comes out on streaming and binge it, whatever, I'm just telling you, you're missing out. So Atlanta season two was was awesome. I really enjoyed it. And I felt like I learned more about the characters. I felt like I learned more about who they are and what makes them tick and some of the things that they're struggling with and their hopes and their dreams and their fears. I feel like he's just accomplishing something with the way in which he's telling the story, something that's different and unique and refreshing. And I could keep talking about it for hours, but Atlanta season two is my last one, man. Man, you and Donald Glover, I feel like would vibe on a really deep level. You know what? I don't (laughs) think we would. I'm dead serious. I don't think we would. How no? I just cannot... I cannot deny his genius. No, remember when I talked about This Is America, which also did not make our list, which is crazy. Yeah, right. This Is America, when I talked about This Is America, I referenced an article, I believe it's Donald Glover Can't Save Us, or something that was written in Vanity Fair or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. And when about. I read it, I was like, bro, I would not get along with this dude. Because <laughs> the way in which he approaches things is from a perspective of genius, though. So this dude is a genius. He's quirky. All genius level people are a that's little bit quirky. Saying. They yeah, say some yeah, weird yeah. things, but I just don't. I don't. I don't think that's the case. I just can't deny that he puts out phenomenal art, and it's yes. killing the game. Man. Yeah, I, I just, feel I you. Can't deny it. Right. Like, like, like. I mean, y'all are coming from very different approaches, ideologically, spiritually, all that. So it wouldn't be like, oh, we think the same way. But I just do see a similarity in the sense that y'all think outside of the box, and I think that's what you appreciate about Atlanta. I mean, it's black, black, but it's also, it's not coming with your traditional kind of television stuff. You know, he's, he's thinking in such a creative way on such a different level, which is what I love about you as a co-host of Pass the Mic is that you're always coming at it from what's new, what's fresh, what's a different angle that people aren't going to predict or anticipate, but that's still brilliant. And so in that sense, I put y'all in the same circles, but not in the sense of... That's, bro, that's high praise, bro. That's like, high praise, <laughs> you got, bro, no, got, a, got a Grammy, an Emmy, a, a everything. I'm like, man, all right, okay. So let me, let me write some TV shows. <laughs> God's got you ministering in the local church and, and on the mic. And so he's just got y'all in different lanes. But I think, you know, your, your passion for bringing story and narrative to life in a unique way is similar. So in that sense, it doesn't surprise me 
that you love the show so much. And uh, I'm definitely going to check it out. In full disclosure, um, I have not watched, I hardly ever watch TV. I usually do streaming services. Oh, you haven't seen season one. Oh, you about to tell us you haven't seen season one. I've seen some of season one. Oh, man. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. I'm getting over a love-hate thing with Atlanta. I used to just be like, oh, Atlanta's done. It's played out. That's where all the black people go, blah, blah, blah. But then I went recently a couple times this year and i'm like you know what (laughs) i see why people like atlanta i'm not gonna lie um and so well i would i would say i would say this this is not like this is not that atlanta yeah no it's not black and bougie atlanta i know that no this is not that atlanta this is (laughs) this is bankhead like (laughs) you know this is like a different yeah this is decatur this is like this is different atlanta than you know like how we would perceive like Atlanta metropolitan area. So I just, I want to encourage you in that, in that way. It's not, you know, like Tyler Perry, Atlanta. This is not Glover, Atlanta. No, I appreciate that. I grew up gritty. So that's, that's more familiar to me. Um, (laughs) That's awesome. Silly, bro. You silly. I'm going to have to binge watch this. Dadgum, man. You give me two albums, uh, books and all this stuff. You got, you give me homework, It's for the people. I'm doing it for the people, (laughs) man. Come on. Uh, you got to be enriched. You got to come into 2019 with the proper escapes, man. Come yes, on. yes, you're doing it. So my last one is what everyone would have predicted is the highest grossing film in the United States. Uh, broke all kinds of records and molds. It is, of course, the Black Bird Box. What? Bird Box, yeah. <laughs> What is she? <laughs> what is she doing? What is she doing? <laughs> yo, Bird Box was fired up. No, I haven't finished it. I've, I've, I yo, shout out to all the pastors who are. <laughs> shout out to all the pastors who are creating Bird Box sermon series. Nah, y'all relevant. Y'all, need to, y'all relevant, but you're doing a lot. You're doing a lot. Doing way, I just want you to but... bring it home. You know. <laughs> A bird box sermon. Nah, I don't know. Um, Black Panther. You're gonna be fired though. Come on, man. Don't make me get out here and do it, man. You know I'll do it. Oh, uh, have, have that bird chirping in that box, man. Let me go to the text. Hold shout on. Out, shout on. out to my guy Michael Harriet of the Root. I had a chance to meet him in person in Memphis during MLK Fifty. Which was also this year. That should have made my list. Honorable. Bruh, there's so many things. <laughs> wow. MLK 50 was the jaunt. Um, shout out to Baltimore. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, uh, Michael Harriet had a great commentary on the route about Bird Box. So, so look that up. Anyway, Black Panther was a wave, man. It just, okay, so, so at, I was thinking about it in relation to um, Into the Spider-Verse. And both are awesome because they use... Uh, racial and ethnic minorities as the main character and superhero they're both sort of groundbreaking in their own way and i think into the spider-verse is an excellent movie but as a cultural phenomenon black panther was the stuff because what it did was and we have a whole episode on this so if you want to hear more about it go back and listen to that um but what it no we have a whole podcast on man yes we have a whole podcast (laughs) once upon a time in wakanda two seasons (laughs) two seasons they blurred out on it um it's great uh so go look up once upon a time in wakanda the 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 graphic art for that is amazing i love it um but yeah so black panther it created an entire nation by and for black people 
that was the most technologically advanced nation on earth, the wealthiest country on earth, and it was led by Black Africans. And so we never see that in contemporary America or historically, right? Um, It's always a white man's world. And so we've had to bend over backwards and go through these heroic efforts to try to recover our history and our heritage and our dignity, our intellectual prowess and capability, and Wakanda does all of that. And so, you know, even focusing in more on Black Panther, it's not just Black Panther as a superhero, it's Wakanda as a nation and a wave, right? I was, um, you know, there's there's all this swag related and, and this merch related to Wakanda. And I remember in the first couple of months when the movie came out, people were like, you know, foreign minister of Wakanda or ambassador to Wakanda and all this stuff. Like we wanted it to be true so bad. We wanted this to be the reality of where black people had were, were world leaders in, in a way that imperialism and colonialism has largely prevented us from being. And it was just a way of recapturing the genius of all humanity, but particularly embodied in black people. And, and I also mention it because it sort of dovetails with um, a, a second cultural artifact that's related, which was our, our Pass the Mic tour. So we were able yes. to kick off the Pass the Mic tour. It was our first time ever doing it. We hit six cities. And the first city we hit was Pensacola. And we went to the premiere of Black Panther. Well, we went to Black Panther um, as, as part of, of that event. And so it was just this wonderful way to kick off the tour, watching this movie, discussing it in person with you, our listeners. Shout out to everybody who came, Dallas, DC, Atlanta, all the places we hit. Um, and and to be able to be face-to-face with you, to interact with you in the Q&A and for the VIP and the, and the um, Pass the Slice, which we did before each one, it was amazing. So I loved the tour and I love that we kicked it off with Black Panther. And uh, it, it, it was a seminal movie. I can't wait for the sequel. Shout out to Ryan Coogler. Shout out to Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o. All of the actors, Chadwick Boseman, everybody who who participated in that, well done. Job well done. Bruh, so listen, the reality is, man, I couldn't I couldn't put Black Panther on the list because I've talked about it so much. I feel like y'all should already know putting it on a list feels like duh. Of course, Black Panther is the thing. It's the thing that is overarching. It's the subtext of 2018. It's amazing. It's gonna win some. Some Oscars as well, which is going to make some people mad, but stay mad. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> and I I loved it. And I still, I watched it actually recently with my wife. I want to say a couple of weeks ago. Or it was actually last week. Man, it holds up. It's still, I'm finding nice. new things about it. I love it. It's still rich. It's still, um, man, just epic. It soars. The writing. And it's ambitious. Y'all don't understand. They came into a Marvel run that was 17 movies, or I think actually at the time, 16 movies deep. 16 movies deep, and they didn't use not one superhero from any of the other movies in that film. Unreal. That's crazy. That's gutsy. That's ambitious. And then went out and and killed all of the other films um, as far as box office other than the Avengers film. So, man, it's... It, it's it's an accomplishment and it's amazing and of course Black Panther is you know overarching and it looms heavy over 2018. It defines 2018 in many ways for a lot of us. And I will say, Avengers: Infinity War has the record for global sales, but Black Panther still has the record for 2018 for 
U.S. sales. So in yeah, in yeah, US, it's it's higher than it domestically. Yeah, it's higher domestically, and it showed mm-hmm. that you can have a a a black cast and an award winning movie. I bet I hope it gets all the awards. Um, although there are some really good other, I hope it gets awards. Let's put it that way. Um, it, it shows that you have a black cast and you can and you can still make money, which is a question. For Hollywood. If they didn't know that, if they didn't know that by now, I'm tired of like telling people that. Because if you don't know that by now, you're just being willfully obtuse. Like you're willfully you know like, ignoring the reality. You know, folk do that. And so you it's had true. Black Panther. You also had Crazy Rich Asians. You know, you had a lot of movies. That yes, that's another thing. Oh my goodness, bro! And raking in I loves comedy. Crazy Rich Asians. So by the in terms of a cultural artifact, what it signifies is that we out you. Like it's not just white people and uh, per- portraying white people in these lead roles in terms of arts and entertainment. You can have non-white people, non-male people, women, you know, and and still make money. And it tells you that the country, in that sense, and even a worldwide market, has changed. And it's only people with these backwards idea of what really sells or what really works that have to actually catch up to the reality that's already out there. And Black Panther was just a very concrete, tangible uh, example of how that's already the case. Absolutely, man. Let me run through just a few of the things very quickly. I know Bo was looking at us <laughs> like we killing already. <laughs> Let me just run through real quick. Let me just run through um, just my honorable mentions. Um, and these are all things that should have been on the list, but it's just I love these seven things more. Um, I just chose these. It was kind of a coin flip on some of them. But first is the Red Flag Podcast featuring yes. our very own Bo York. I learned so much binging that podcast last week. So shout out to Bo York. Um, also, the movie First Reformed. Jamar, you would love this movie. Oh, it's man. a movie about a clergy, uh, Presbyterian clergyman. Um, who kind of encounters activism, and I won't give away any more, but it's by, um, it stars Ethan Hawke. So First Reformed is a really good one for you. Uh, Living in Between by Andre Reznor. I've referenced it on the podcast before, so I didn't make my list because of that. Um, The Certain Sound of the Trumpet by Samuel DeWitt Proctor, The Late Great, another black preaching book. Um, R plus R equals now album by the Robert Glasper supergroup, the Black Panther album, which was crazy. Um, basketball and other things by Shea Serrano. It's a book. Uh, my South Africa trip, uh, my trip to Montgomery, and then also, of course, the PTM tour. So those are things. And also Exodus preaching by Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. So That's those awesome. are my honorable mentions. Um, I don't know if you had any that yes, you wanted to mention. My only tomorrow. two honorable mentions were Creed Two, the advanced viewing, and the interview. Which uh, yeah. I don't know if I told you on mic, but Tyler, you killed that interview. High pressure situation where the tech had to be right, and we only had ten minutes, but you got it in there. You got great answers from him, so you 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 were absolutely the best man for the job. I'm sorry I missed interviewing MBJ, but I'm glad you got to do it because it was dope. And then lastly, thank you, bro. Um, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then lastly, some of the legislation that passed in the last couple of months of 2018. Bruh, the lynching one, bruh. Yes, the anti-lynching, which passed through the Senate, um, is likely on its way to becoming a law. But since 1918, there have been around 200 anti-lynching bills proposed. None of them have passed into law. And finally, 
We have the Senate passing an anti-lynching bill and uh, might finally in 2018 become law. Um, I think I've got an article out on that on Religion News Service that we'll post in the show notes uh, about it. And then lastly, uh, the criminal justice reform, which was not perfect, but it was bipartisan and it was a step. Forward. Yeah, it's the first step back. Yeah, man, that's a good step. Good first step, step bro. Act is a good step. Um, it only applies to federal prisons, which is only about 10% mm-hmm. of the inmates. But mm-hmm. some of the reform, you know, you can't handcuff women while they're in labor. Seems like a pretty good reform to me yep. uh, that we shouldn't have ever had to make, but we did. Um, it, it has some sentencing reform in there. All that stuff, you can read about it. But but yeah, those were my other two honorable mentions. Jamar, it's been a pleasure, man. 2018 has been awesome. Woo! I'm excited for where we go in 2019. Y'all already know the theme of 2019 is joy and justice, which will dovetail into our 2019 conference, October 4th and 5th in Chi-Town, the Windy City. No so cap. excited to see all of you there. No cap for 2019. You can't say that ever again, Jamar. But <laughs> thank you all so much for being listeners. You guys are always our top cultural artifact because you keep us on the air. You keep us going. Thank you for all your words of encouragement, your uplift, your DMs, your messages. They were all well-timed and necessary. We're going to be back in 2019. And man, 2019 is going to be crazy. I can't even wait for our first episode. Man, I'm telling y'all, we we going for it in 2019. We're going to go for it in 2019. If you thought we were going for it in 2018, it's more that's going to come in 2019. You just got to stay tuned on the next Pass the Mic. Peace out to 2018. We'll see you guys next year.